Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast, and I got a special guest today. I'm so excited about this. Um, this is last minute. Literally, just the other day, I asked him, hey, can you be on the show? I'm going to try to publish this today um, because this is a really important week. And uh, his name is Ian Flanagan. But first, let me tell you guys, I want you to go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. And uh, we have the Fast Cash Survival Kit that you can get in there. It's a really valuable free bonus. You're going to get a lot of good stuff. You've heard us talk about it before. And uh, also, the show notes for this call, I promise you there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're going to want to get after listening to this call that we're doing with Ian. And so um, just right now, go over to the show notes and see what we have in there. we got some good goodies for you. Um, oh, yeah, I wanted to say something, too, and maybe I'll wait till No, no, I'll tell you right now. I was looking online <laughs> at our stats, and get this, Ian. You'll be my co-host today, okay? All righty. Uh, we have listeners from 165 different countries. Wow, that's incredible. Listening to this podcast. 165 countries? 165 countries. And if I were wow. to read you the list, I'd probably put you to sleep. But it's, a, <laughs> it's so crazy to see some of these countries where they have people listening to us. I mean, with technology today, anywhere in the world, you can listen to you know, podcasts. And it's amazing, the technology. But you know, we've got these people in, in these little islands that I've never even heard of near Puerto Rico that are listening to us, or <laughs> Techmenistan in in, uh, in Western Asia, or maybe I think that's what it is. Um, yeah, so absolutely. It's crazy, and uh, this is an exciting time. I'm glad to be doing what we're doing. And we have a special guest today, and uh, I, I, we're doing this on video, so if you're listening to the audio, you can go to the website, Real Estate Investing Mastery, and see the video. But you'll notice in Ian's back office, it's a real office, and I could tell he's got deals going on because <laughs> he's got folders there, right? He's got a map on the wall. Yeah, with, that, uh, that's my partner over there. And his business partner. What's his name? Hello? His name's Bandle Kite. Yeah, that's my, uh, that's my partner in crime over there. Nice. And so this is, uh, this is what uh, a, a real deal-making business looks like. Now, my background is an office in my basement. I do hey. have an office that I rent that I have my assistants working out of, but I mostly work from home. Cool. And uh, but I'm just a little different, I guess. But I, I wish sometimes um, I worked more in my regular office. I sometimes joke too, Ian, that my my third office is at Starbucks. Do you ever yeah, work there well, much yourself? You know what? I don't just because uh, whenever I'm out, I always get back here, or I'm either at home. You know, I have a <clears throat> I have a home office at my house, and and that's where I started that's where i did all my deals so my closet next to it is just filled with <laughs> books and content and cds i mean i think anybody that's in this business has that that library of content to learn all the different strategies and the techniques and different things but i think it's just amazing what you're doing because it's it's really hard to get into conversations with guys that are actually really doing the business mm -hmm. so i think this is a great platform and uh you know thanks again for having me on well, you're right in the middle of a huge launch. Uh, you've come out with this product, and I believe you called it Hidden Cash Flow Fortunes. Yep. And uh, I'm really excited about this. I don't promote that much stuff. Um, a lot of things kind of go around, and I just ignore it. Um, but this is really cool. Zach 
called me, one of your mentors, and yep. said, hey, you've got to check this guy out, Ian. Um, this is the real deal, and he's actually doing this stuff. He's not actually <laughs> – you're not a trained guru, uh, professional no. speaker. Um, you might have taken some sales training. I don't know, but I doubt it. And uh, you have actually – this is something you've been doing for the last couple of years. Um, yep. It really caught Zach's attention. And he said, we've got to release this out to the public. And so this is something that you've been doing in the past and you're doing now. And now you're also teaching people how to do this stuff. And I'm excited about this because this is kind of similar to the niche that I have been in for a long time of finding properties that everybody else just throws away and taking those leads that um, investors, other investors will throw away and turning them into gold, turning your trash into gold, I guess you might want to call yes, it. Yes, that's exactly what this strategy is. And you're finding deals that other people pass up, and you're, you're being creative. You're not a one-size-fits-all uh, trick pony. You're finding yep. these deals that don't have much equity in them, if at any at all. And you're being creative with them, and then you're selling them. And I've never heard of this before, and this is what I'm really excited to learn about, is you're selling them to hedge funds. The notes yeah, well, yeah, well, we sell, obviously, we sell the property to a, we call them tenant buyers, just folks that buy the property and move in and live. You're very familiar with tenant, tenant buyers. But once we have that note, we have the ability to either sell a partial of that note, which we can monetize our profits and keep cash flow, or if there's enough spread in the deal that we can sell the note to the hedge fund at a discount because... Um, these are basically newly originated. There's not a whole lot of seasoning on them, but we're, we're able to offload our notes that way as well. And so this is, um, and this is something you just kind of stumbled on, and we'll get into your story, Ian, in a minute here. Um, but I'm excited about this, guys. I think you really should listen up. This isn't going to be like your typical webinar. We're really going to dive in deep and ask Ian difficult questions. He's agreed to come on this podcast and uh, share his knowledge with you guys but he's got a really, really powerful product right now that you really, I strongly suggest that you take advantage of and invest in. It'll pay back many times over if you take what the stuff that he's going to be teaching and actually start implementing it. Um, so right now, this week, there's a lot of other people's emailing out about this stuff. I said to Zach, I've got to get this guy on the podcast because I'm excited about this. But Ian, talk maybe a little bit back into your history um, you're, you were, I heard you talk before, you were a guy who bought a lot of courses. You went to a lot of training in real estate. Um, you wanted to do real estate, but you, you, know, you kind of struggled maybe a little bit getting started. Can you tell a little bit about your history and story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I was chasing the dream of being a professional musician in my early 20s. I mean, I don't look like I'm 40, but I'm 40 now, so I've I've been around long enough to, uh, you know, fail miserably and keep, you know, pick myself up and keep going. But, you know, I came out of the, uh, the music dream realizing that I wasn't going to be able to make a living or, you know, have the life that I wanted to live. So I went into hairdressing, which hairdressing provided a great income for me. And I loved it dearly. And I, and I built a massive clientele. But, you know, I hate, I always say this, sounds cliche, but I read that book, Rich Dad Poor Dad. And the reality of life of trading dollars for hours was more apparent after reading that book. And I just knew at some point that I did not want to continue that. And then I knew that most millionaires were, you know, either had real estate in their portfolios or real estate is what got them there. So I knew absolutely nothing about real estate. But 
Um, you remember back in the, the heydays, the early 2000s, all the way up to 2005, if you could walk into a bank, fog a mirror, and say you made $80,000 a year, you got a bank loan. Mm-hmm. Well, I was one of those folks. I bought my first house in 2006, and that's when I really, really got the bug for real estate. You know, that's when I started, you know, uh, updating my property, making it nicer, just really, really caught the bug for living, breathing, and owning real estate. And I started reading books on how to buy and sell, and everything was just so over my head in the beginning because, you know, it's just like a foreign language. You know, you have to learn the vocabulary and the language of real estate before you can feel comfortable talking to people about real estate. So, you know, there was a few years there that I didn't necessarily try to get into the business. I was just trying to learn more about it. So right around 2008 is when I said, okay, I want to try to do this to make money. So I'm sure like a lot of folks out there, bought some rich dad education. When I swiped that credit card for 30000 I thought my wife was going to divorce me. She about flipped out. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my education. I was learning about pre-foreclosures and wholesaling and lease options and all these different buy and hold strategies. But just like a lot of people in the beginning, it's, it's like shiny new object syndrome. I, if I would have, obviously a lot of people say this, if I knew then what I knew now, I could have built a massive portfolio of cash flow off all the money that I spent on trying to find deals, trying to get educated and all the other things, you know, learning tax liens and short sales and all the, all the other stuff that comes along with trying to learn the business. At the end of the day, if you're not building cash flow, then you're never going to get to that point where you can let go of your job and have your residual income make that, those payments for you. So, or just pay, you know, make your monthly uh, expenses. So, I don't need millions of dollars. I just need residual income that covers my, my monthly expenses. So yeah. once I kind of realized that that was the path that I wanted to take, well, we'll, what year was we'll that, step by back. The way? What year was that? That was, I mean, well, coming out of 08, 08, 09, and 10 is when I really started getting into wholesaling. And I you know, started seeing some profits coming in from wholesaling, but I wasn't able to really scale that business because I didn't have the marketing and I didn't have the knowledge to know how to really outsource it at you know, really low wages, virtual assistants, paying people on commissions regardless. But I wasn't able to scale a wholesaling business. Um, and after I met my partner somewhere around 2011, you know, we really got together. We went into business together. We were wholesaling and rehabbing. And then we got a taste of what the real world of rehabbing is, you know, getting eaten alive by contractors, <laughs> the city permitting department and all that. And then getting beat down to the, t- all the way down to the closing table by the people buying your houses, making those repairs and, but you know, all the other things that come along with it. But we knew that we couldn't scale a rehabbing business into the, into the level that we were looking to and really start turning volume. But at the same time, we weren't carrying any cash flow back on the properties. Um, some properties we made good money on, some properties we didn't make money on. And then you know, a few we lost money on. So that was really the, the shift for us because we had some rental properties and I just remember thinking their problems are my problems because I was <laughs> dealing with these folks. And I just mm-hmm. knew that I didn't want to, I wanted cash flow, but I did not want to have the landlord kind of mentality and the expense yeah. and, you know, really being emotionally wrapped up in, because when you're holding rental properties, it's kind of an emotional deal. You know, you're, you're getting calls all the time to make those repairs. You know, when you're in between tenants, you're trying to get them cleaned up. You're at the expense of, you know, car, carpet, paint, whatever appliances are busted. So I had heard about carrying back notes, but I didn't really know where to go to learn about it. I mean, I had had a little bit of mentoring on it, but it wasn't like a business model. So 
I just remember doing some research on it and I said, I told my partner, I was like, look, let's try to do this strategy. So what we did is we started making seller, seller carryback offers to for sale by owners and on the MLS. And we found this lady that had a house listed for like $50,000. So you're making, instead of making an offer to buy their house. Cash. Cash, where you have to get the house at 50 cents on the dollar. Yes. Which is some, sometimes like pulling out teeth. Yep. You're offering her the price that she wants, maybe, right? Pretty close to it, yes. With ca- as kind of like owner financing. Yes, exactly what it is. Okay, all right. So, for example, there was this house that was sitting on the market, um, and she was initially asking like 50000 for it. It needed a lot of repairs. So she was asking somewhere around 35000 or thirty two. This was kind of, This was years ago. I don't remember the exact. I just remember we bought the house for 25000 We offered her an $8,000 down payment and the balance in monthly payments, which my first offer always has no interest on it. So there was a no interest seller carryback loan. She said yes. Couldn't believe it. So in that contract period, we put bandit signs out all around the neighborhood, house for sale, owner financing, and we had a guy call us up who owned several rental properties in that neighborhood. Came over to the house. He said, how much you asking? I said, 35000 He was like, yeah, that's a good price. He's like, well, how much do you want down? I was like, I don't know. How much can you put down? So well, I can put you 10000 down. I was like, oh my gosh, I just got my down payment covered. Mm-hmm. So I was able to leverage his down payment to make my down payment. Mm-hmm. And when we did that deal, the light bulb went off in my head and we just went headfirst into that strategy. After we finished that last big rehab, paid off our lenders, we were like, this is what we're doing. And this was in the DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth area, is that right? Yep. Okay, yep, now, absolutely is. Talk about uh, what kind of, and you'll probably talk about this later, but what kind of neighborhood was this home in? Is it a rental neighborhood? Is it a nice median income neighborhood? This one was a little lower. Um, this was definitely on the lower end. I wouldn't say like war zone, but it was in the price point where the houses are renting for about seven fifty a month. So there are areas that are a little bit more depressed, but most of the um, the folks in this area are actually um, tenants. I mean, rental tenants. So it's a rental neighborhood, lower income, um, because the median home price. In my area across the Metroplex on average is somewhere around 160 right now. Mm-hmm. And this house was worth about 45, 55 all fixed up. Typically a landlord would buy that property. Yes, that's exactly what it was, you know. But we were just looking for someone to come in and do the repairs themselves because we didn't want to make any more repairs. We were like, you know, this is just madness, you know, trying to just dump money into a house oh, yeah. because pouring money into a house doesn't force the appreciation. That just means you got more money into the deal. Yeah. So, okay, and, then so we did it, and we did another one, and it just literally just kind of snowballed from there. What what years was it when you started doing this? This was uh, right around 2012, so somewhere around that timeline. So, um, like I said, we had had a few rental properties, and then we ended up converting those into notes. Um, and then over the last few years, you know, we're pushing at the end of 14 now. So in the last few few years, we've probably done about seventy five of these little boogers. Wow! So, well, like I said, we really scale it and snowball it because we started building our buyers list, and now we're at the point. You know, obviously the market's turned. We're in a seller market now, and the inventory levels all across the city are, are really low. The wholesalers' margins are being pushed up, and then the rehabbers are bidding those properties up, so their margins are even tighter. Um, 
the inventory levels have come down, so sellers aren't willing to take our offers like they were a couple of years ago, but we're still able we're still able to move through inventory. So now we have a huge buyers list and we need inventory to feed them. And your who are your buyers for these properties? Our target demographic is the the um is the lower income worker that earns anywhere from about, you know, thirty five to forty five thousand dollars. Um, the, the demographic would be more the Hispanic family. You know, these folks, uh, they have cash to put down. They work very hard. They can make their monthly payment and they're just looking for a place that they can call home and own the property as well. So, you know, that's our target demographic here in the, uh, the Dallas area. Now, when you, because I'm, ex- the reason I'm excited about this is because I've, I've typically will do lease options on homes at the median home price and above. Mm-hmm. But the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of wholesaling in the rental neighborhoods, just like what you're talking about. The home prices are around 40, 40 50 grand at the upper mm-hmm. end. And landlords are typically going in and buying these, renting them out for seven, eight hundred a month. And they have good ROI. Yep. But a lot of the homes in this neighborhood, you have to get them really low because really uh, low. you have to get them really low if you want to buy them with cash. Um, and for the last two years, I've thrown away literally every lead that didn't have enough equity or they wouldn't agree to my price. I follow up with them, but um, always in the back of my mind, I've been thinking, well, how could I create some kind of owner financing, creative financing deal with these and then make money with these properties that I'm throwing away, which is probably 50 to 70% of my leads would fall into this category. Yeah, absolutely. So somebody who's doing a lot of marketing and getting frustrated with these leads that they're throwing away um, because they don't have enough equity or they can't agree on a price with the seller. This is a this is a strategy, another tool that you can put in your tool belt where you can make quite a bit of money with these things. Um, so then let me ask you, Ian, are you targeting – let's start from the marketing. You, you're, you're marketing for these deals. You're f- looking for these sellers. Mm-hmm. Um, what What's your favorite kind of marketing strategy to get in front of these homeowners who own these properties? Um, right now, just properties that are online, either through the MLS for sale by owner, um, any of those, you know, by owner sites, uh, I mean, anywhere that has houses for rent, it's perfect because those houses are vacant and I love vacant houses, regardless if they're distressed or not, because if somebody's trying to rent a property that's vacant, they need to get that payment covered or they need to get that property mm-hmm. turned into an asset for them. So really targeting, you know, I like to say these are the free leads. Um, targeting those online are my favorite ways to start. And then obviously moving into the direct mail campaigns, I target, you know, absentee out-of-state owners. I target expired listings. I, tar- I target code violations, bankruptcies, divorces, evictions, um, probates, and notice of defaults. Okay. So that's, a, that's more of a highly motivated type of list. And but you're you're still targeting the homes in only in these specific neighborhoods, right? Yes, yes. Like I have my my zip code matrix laid out, and I know exactly which zip codes that I want to be doing business in. Like I don't I don't do direct mail campaigns in zip codes where the median price is like six hundred thousand and up. Okay. Because we're looking to do volume, and that's where I've found the most success is in those you know lower class, working class neighborhoods. 
Yeah. Um, it just came a lot easier to do the deals there. I mean, not to say that I wouldn't do a, you know, a higher four, five, six hundred thousand dollar house if there was enough equity and I had a motivated seller that'd be willing to sell on my terms. Yeah. But um. But that's just what we found the less resistance in. So when you're sending marketing out to these guys, what's your what's your pitch? I mean, how are you? Um, are you just telling them, hey? I saw your rental property on Craigslist. Are you interested in selling it? Yeah, let's see here. I'll actually read you the copy off one of my campaigns that I just sent. Let's see here. You know, I like to try to keep the copy really simple and not try to, you know, tell them a thousand different ways of how I can buy their house. It's just, it's just real simple. You know, one of the postcards I've used is like we buy houses fast and then I'll use a, just a phone number and not put um, a website on there. I've had a better response from just a phone number rather than a, a website URL. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I am running some. Um, I was actually spent about an hour this morning working on my Google AdWords campaigns. So we're targeting um, the two counties that I live in through Google AdWords, and we have about a thousand different copies of ads that go up. But here's one of my um, yellow letters. And it's very, very simple. And this is what I send out to my absentees and, you know, the targeted lists. It's like, hello, Gary, my name is Ian, and I want to buy your house located at 123 Main Street. If you have considered selling your home for any reason, we should talk right away to determine if my cash offer is right for you. Thank you, Ian Flanagan. And then I use a PS here. I'll make it simple, fast, and easy. And uh, for, uh, I'll make it simple, fast, and easy for you and I can pay cash and buy as is and then I just leave my local phone number but here's the cool part about that is you know I've automated that intake system to where <clears throat> that local phone number is actually a call forwarding routing phone number that I shoot that out to a call center in Florida that has 24 hour call service and then when they pick the phone up they say thank you for calling Golden Falls Properties do you have a property you'd like to sell and if they say yes, great, then my script pops up, takes all their information, takes all the property information, and then I get into a little bit more detail about the property, um, you know, your asking price, you know, if they're behind on payments, if they are behind on payments, how many payments, what is the payment, how much do they owe, and then whenever that lead gets submitted, I get it over in an email, and then I can take a look at it, do my due diligence if I feel like there's um, a big play on it. And then I can literally call them back with, a, with an offer right there. Um, you know, I can write the offer up, send it over. I can send it over um, through a DocuSign where they can just electronically sign it, w whatever the case may be. But, it, you know, it took a very, very long time just to learn how to kind of set all that up. Yeah. So, so that's a lot of golden nuggets for you guys right there. That's how I run my marketing systems. And that's well, how we really automate simple. that. It's really yeah, simple, it is. It? Are you going to actually see the house, meet with the sellers? Yes. Um, yeah. Like I won't just, I don't go run out and look at every single house. Obviously there has to be um, some motivation there. So when, when I do my pre-screening, you know, I'll ask them certain types of questions like, you know, if I can buy your house between, you know, 45 and 55, would that be something you'd be willing to entertain? If they say yes, then I make an appointment and I go see the house and I leave a written offer with them. Um, if I don't feel they're motivated, then I can still send them over an offer like on an LOI or even in an email, just getting them some numbers and I just let them respond from there. So it just depends. And then I'll ask, also ask people if I make an appointment with them, like, would you be willing to sign the paperwork? 
if we can agree on price and terms. Oh, yeah, that's a hugely important question. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So you really need to, you know, really pre-screen folks to where they understand that you're serious, you understand that they're motivated, because if they're not motivated, then they're not going to agree to any of your price and terms. Right. You know, it just is what it is. So talk about how you make your offers. Are you first making a cash offer to buy their house, see what they say, and then come back with some kind of seller financing? So what I do is I, I, do, I always do three offers. At the same time? Yeah, so it'll be like A, B, and C. So like Mr. Seller, here are three different ways I can buy your property. Offer number one. And it's always very, very close to their asking price. So if they're asking 75 and I've verified that the property is worth 7580 right around there, my price will be like, um, Mr. Seller, my first offer is 67000 with a $10,000 down payment and the balance in monthly. So you're, I'm, I'm sorry to, uh, to No, that's fine. Interrupt yeah, you. Let's, your first offer is not a cash offer at $20,000? No, it's, it's a terms offer. So all three of your offers are terms offers? I'm getting there. <laughs> my <laughs> cash <laughs> offer is, my, is the third one. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So all cash is the third. The first one is very, very close to asking okay, price. Okay, good. Now, if the property needs no repairs whatsoever, I can even, I can even get right at their asking price. Mm-hmm. So if they're asking $75,000, my offer is, Mr. Seller, I can buy your house for $75,000, $10,000 down payment, balance in monthly payments. Now, that has no interest on it. Yes. I don't. I don't put interest into the deal and until they counter and negotiate interest in the deal. Right. So the second offer, for example, they're asking 75. The second offer would be uh, $65,000, $15,000 down balance in monthly payments. That's a lot Third of money offer, down payment. But it? here's the kicker. I'm leveraging my borrowers to make my down payment. Okay. I'm not coming to the closing table with $15,000. Right. I'm just making them an offer. And then when we put that property under contract, I'm closing in 45 days. I'm not closing in two weeks. I'm going to set it up, close it in 45 days. And then as soon as I get it under contract, I start marketing to my buyers. And in those first three weekends, most of the time I have the property under contract with someone that's agreeing to pay me either 15 or more. So I leverage the down payments from other folks to make my down payments. So the only way that you can do that is when you have a buyer's list in place. So when you have a really big buyer's list and you've pre-screened all these folks and you figure out who has cash and who doesn't, you basically take those folks, bring them out to the property all at the same time. So we're going to hold an open house between Saturday between 1 and 3. And I send that out and usually call fire is an account that we do. And I'll talk a little bit about my marketing when we uh, get to that point. But yeah. offer number one, 70000 10000 in down payment, balance in monthly. Offer number two, $65,000, $15,000 down payment, balance in monthly. The third offer is always the wholesale cash offer. Okay. So they can see that you know, I'm not lowballing them on my first offer because it's very, very close to their asking price. You know, every, every seller's different. Now, if they have debt on the property, meaning they're paying a mortgage, now it's a decision that they would have to make if they want to go through the transaction with me because there is a mortgage on the property. I can cover their payments. I can make sure their taxes are current. You know, that lender, you know, the due on sale clause that everyone's scared of. I was on the phone yesterday with a lender and you know, he told me from the horse's mouth, I don't care if the property sells. All I care about is the taxes are current and I get my note payment every month. 
That's what he told me. Well, especially in these neighborhoods, the banks Absolutely. don't want these properties back. No, they don't. You know, the expense to take them back, hold them, carry them, you know, if they do have to take them through the legal process to get them back, it's 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 a lot of cash for these for these for these uh lenders to take these properties back. So, if they're behind on payments, I can we can negotiate to make those payments up, but it all comes down to the motivation of the seller. So you're and giving, I can't drive that home. Oh, you're right. Because if they're not motivated, there's really nothing. They're you not can do. willing to sell on my terms. Yeah. Right. But a lot of times, though, you can still work with. Um, you can still work with lesser motivated sellers. Yeah. Because you're giving them the price that they want. Yes. So on a scale of of one to ten, if you're just doing wholesaling, they need to be on a nine or a ten scale. Like, if if you're just doing wholesaling to get it at fifty cents on the dollar and. and quickly flip it you have, yep. they have to be on a scale of nine to ten ten being the most motivated but i would imagine with these kinds of deals they maybe need to be on a six to ten scale so it yes. opens up more sellers that you can actually work with do you understand what I absolutely okay. yeah it just gives you it just gives you an additional kind of arsenal in your tool belt to be able to take properties down that don't need repairs that that sellers are not going to mm-hmm except a 50 cents on the dollar offer. Now, the property has to qualify for that 60 to 50 cents on the dollar offer. You know, the property has to be beat up, distressed, vacant for a long time. Now, that's the only way that people are willing to let those properties go at the huge discounts. Right. So now is if the if the property's really beat up and they just want it out of their hair. So you're the, that's another huge advantage to this is because these properties don't need a ton of work. In fact, no, a lot of times they're, they're already being advertised for rent, so they're already cleaned up and ready for a tenant. But that yep. landlord is just sick of it, wants to get rid of it, and uh, yep. doesn't want to deal with any more tenants. And uh, you can, you're now coming in as saying, "Hey, I'll buy this property. You don't need to worry about maintenance and repairs anymore. I'll yep. cover the mortgage and take care of it. You don't have to." So it's not absolutely. You're not trying to convince them to hold it a little bit longer while they're being a landlord. Does that make sense? Absolutely it does. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right, right. And that's, you know, that just comes down to pre-screening that lead to determine their level of motivation. And, you know, and a lot of people that, you know, that are holding rentals, they've been burned, they've been beat up, they're tired of making the payments, they're tired of making the, uh, the repairs on it, you know. Yes, those guys can finance you and then you can sell it on a wrap as well. They call that a double wrap. It all just comes down to the motivated party. I mean, that's, right. that is the key. You know, I tell this to a lot of folks. There's three things that you need to focus on in your business. Number one, marketing for motivated sellers. Number two, marketing for motivated buyers and making offers. And if you can get those three things down where you're consistently doing it week after week after week after week, that's when you get traction. So if you're not speaking with folks weekly, Regardless if they're a buyer, seller, other investor, another professional, title company, real estate agent, no matter who, you'll never get the business off the ground. So back to what I said earlier about the language of real estate. A lot of folks, when they're new, they're not talking to people and professionals because they don't have the vocabulary to have an intelligent conversation about it. But just like you know, and just like I've you know, learned over the years, you know, now I, it takes the fear out of speaking to people um, about real estate. And, you know, I don't make emotional decisions on property. Everything that we do is based off numbers, which are basically unemotional decisions. So we don't let emotion make any decision. So, 
we run our numbers through our spreadsheets, our software, and it's a deal or no deal. Yeah. You know, right before you and I got on the call, I was actually negotiating with my agent on an offer that I made on the MLS. So I was going back and forth with her to negotiate my terms. Mm-hmm. So now, okay, when you, back to the terms, you're you're how are you setting up the the monthly payment amount? Are you spreading it out over ten years, fifteen years? Um, I do it in a way. I always back my way into the numbers. So if I know that I'm going to sell the property for $60,000, here, I'm going to pull out my little financial calculator real quick so I can give you some accurate numbers. So I know that if, I'm, if my target sale price is $60,000, right, and I know that I'm going to put a 10% interest rate on it, I'm going to try to get a shorter term out of my buyer, so I'm going to try to get a term of like 25 years. So if I sell it for 60000 for 25 years at 10% interest, that's a principal interest payment of five forty-five twenty-two. So this down. all I'm going to do is five. focus on the spread. So five forty-five twenty-two, okay. $60,000, 25-year AM, 10% interest. That's principal and interest. That's just P&I, yeah. Because the taxes and the insurance go on top of that for my buyer. So I kind of back my way into the numbers. So I know that I can pay $45,000 and I'm going to try to get it on a 30-year AM. And my first offer is always no interest. So that would be somewhere around $125 a month. They may or may not take that. I can also say, all right, I'll give you a balloon payment in 10 years. So if they accept my 125 a month, you know, and then a, and then a, the, all the balance due in 10 years, then that makes my offer a little bit more attractive to them. So I just look at the spread because I got 125 going out and then I have what was that number I told you 545 545 yeah, so so that's a $395 a month net cash flow. So I always back my way into the numbers. I look at what I can sell it for, what, what are the terms I can get on the sale, and then that basically gets me to, I put a spread on it, I go backwards, I have a small spread, and then I get to my first offer price that way. So are you looking at this house, many times these buyers are more concerned about the monthly nut they have to crack Yes. The price, right? So you're looking at this house. Absolutely. So homes in this neighborhood might rent for $700 a month. But now you're making this deal attractive to somebody where if they bought it with owner financing, the payments would be actually lower than what the rent would be. Is that about right? Yeah, or equal to. Absolutely. Because let's say it's uh, the principal interest is 545 And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them add their insurance. Let's say that's $45 a month. And then let's say the in, then let's say the taxes are about sixty five a month, and then I'm going to throw on the servicing cost because we set them up with a licensed loan servicer, and they escrow for taxes and insurance. And they basically, if I have an underlying debt, I set them up to where my servicer pays my underlying debt, and then they kick me the difference every month. So their payment will be somewhere around six ninety total. Okay. And if they need to get that lowered, then I can say, okay, I'll extend out your term to thirty years. So if you do $60,000 for 30 years, that's going to drop that principal interest payment. 
And you're doing, you're charging your end buyer who's living in the house 10%. Yeah, a lot of times it's higher. Because usury laws right now are 11.99. Dodd-Frank says I can charge up to 11.99. It's considered a high-cost mortgage because it's a point and a half over the current prime rate. I can legally charge 6.5% over prime. So, for example, if the prime rate's 4%, I can add 6.5 to it on a first lien. Then I can add 8.5% on a second, but nothing over 12. Okay. Max 12. Okay. Um, the Now, just so I'm clear, because you're offering to give the seller 15 grand down, and you're also collecting 15 grand from the buyer. So you're, are you only counting your profit on the monthly spread every month, or are you making well, any profit on the down payment up front as well? Yeah, so on the first example, if, if my seller says yes to my $15,000 down payment, obviously I'm going to try to get a larger payment from my buyers. But my payment that I make offers on is contingent on what my buyers have in cash. So if I know that I have several different people on my list that has twenty to 30000 cash, then I will split that in half. So if I know that somebody has 30000 that wants a certain area, I'll target properties in the area that they want, and I'll make those offers to anyone that has a house, either for sale by owner, MLS, for rent, no matter what it is. I'll go directly to them and say, look, I'll offer you 15000 down because I know that I can bring in thirty from my buyer. And yes, there's closing costs, and then depending on how well you can negotiate that, and if there's agents involved, then yes, those you know, agents have to be paid out of those down payments as well. So you know, it, everything just depends. Everything is a negotiation, and you're just trying to maximize you know, the amount of money that you get it from closing. So if I know that my buyer is bringing 30 to the table, and then I'm willing – and I've agreed to pay fifteen. Then I know that I have a fifteen thousand dollar gross number. Now that I, you know, if I can help that buyer out, you know, if they can't afford all the closing costs, then I'll absorb some of those closing costs. So maybe I walk away from the title company with twelve. But here's the most beautiful part about everything: it's the interest, it's the amortization on the second transaction that makes it so sexy. Because I love saying this: a sixty thousand dollar house will never appreciate. 12% a year for 30 years. Mm-hmm. But a $60,000 note will pay me 12% <laughs> for a very, very long time. That's a, that's, so a good, you, that's a good tweetable. Yeah, tweetable. I like that. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> a $60,000 house will never appreciate 12%. A year after year for 30 years. But, so let's say, yeah, so let's say I'm going to get, so if I amortize $60,000 over 30 years at 10% interest, that's a principal interest payment of five twenty six fifty four. So there's three hundred and sixty months that these folks are going to be paying me five twenty six fifty four. That is a hundred and eighty nine thousand five hundred and fifty four dollars. That is that is true wealth building right there. Well, you're 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 becoming the bank. That's exactly what it is. I mean, think about that. What do what do banks do? They loan money on interest. They loan money on real estate. They loan money on all different types of multifamily, you know, anything that if there's commercial, whatever the case may be. 
They loan it on real estate. They loan it on cars, and then they do unsecured lines of credit. But they're not going to give you a $100,000 unsecured line of credit because there's no collateral on that credit card. That's what's so beautiful about banks is they loan it based off the collateral value. They call the loan to value. That's why they order appraisals. That's why they get inspections. They want to make sure the property is functioning properly and there's nothing that's going to come back to bite the homeowner that would cause them to slip into default. So there's a reason why banks loan against real estate because there's real asset, there's real collateral. You know, you can't go down to a bank and borrow $100,000 to go gamble in the stock market, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. But so you can leverage it with real estate. Another question I have then is, this example where you're selling it for 60000 to an end buyer who's going to live in it. Yep. Um, can you also have the purchase price of 60000 to the buyer to the seller? I mean, are you marking up the price a little bit? Yeah. I like to put – obviously, we like to try to get the largest spread that we can. But you, you, when, when a seller finances you on the front end, or you bring in private capital or, or whatever the case may be. But if you can get a long or even like a 20-year AM from the first transaction, I don't need to have a massive spread. Like I marked one property up $8,000 because the interest alone will diminish your debt at a rate faster than what you owe your seller. So basically just the interest alone will just eliminate my debt. And once my debt's paid off, then I absorb 100% of that cash flow, that net, right. that principal interest payment. So you have to look at the amortization over time you know, to see where your debt's going down because 10% interest in a 30-year AM, the first 8, 10 years, they're paying all interest. Mm-hmm. So if I borrowed it at 20 years on my first transaction, in the first 8 years, you know, half of that or almost three-quarters of my debt is gone. So it really accelerates that debt down low if you can get someone to accept, you know, a small down payment, balance of monthly payments. Now, with a lease option strategy like you're very, very familiar with, you're looking to get as big as a down payment as possible and then also how to maximize that spread on the back end. So when they go into refinance and you get that big check on the back end. So we don't do contract for deed anymore, so I can't charge interest on a property that I'm not conveying the deed to. So if you know, if you have a seller that's willing to finance you um, but not necessarily give you ownership, then you have to take a lease option strategy because they're not conveying the deed to you, and then you're not conveying the deed to your buyer. So whenever you're conveying the deed to your buyer, that's when you can charge the big interest rate. And, you know, this is the private sector. That's what's great about this country. You know, this is true capitalism. It's a deal between two people. He agrees to pay my price at my interest rate. And, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can for him to make sure that he's successful at that. Mm -hmm. Now, if he needs to get refinanced down the road, I call it bridge financing, kind of like hard money. Like, look, we're going to amortize you over 30 years, but I'm also going to put you with a credit repair company and get you in touch with a mortgage broker. So at some point down the road, once your credit gets to a certain level, with FHA right now, we'll do 580 credit score if you can show good you know, credit history. So at some point down the road, you can refinance down to a lower rate. Yeah. So they take it because no one else is going to you know, give them that. And that's basically a subprime type of product, which is kind of non-existent in the market right now. But just to be clear, you know, if that house is worth sixty thousand in that neighborhood, you're not marking it up to a hundred thousand dollars. No, 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 no. 
No, I'll mark it up just a little bit above. If it doesn't need repairs whatsoever, then I'll mark it up a little bit above market, you know, five to 10%. Um, if it's, if it needs a ton of repairs, I'm just going to try to, I'm just going to try to lock it up and then flip it to my, my investor guy. He's going to come in with his cash, do the renovation, put the renter in it. And then he pays me my monthly payment. And if I have debt on it, then I pay, you know, my payment out to the seller or the lender or whoever I got the money from. Okay. Now, good. You, you mentioned you don't do contract for deeds. I'm a little confused then. Um, how are you tying these properties up? Are you tying them up um, on a lease option or a, a contract for deed where the seller still keeps the deed? No, it's actually it? a purchase. Okay. You're purchasing. So my it. primary strategy, yes, is a purchase. Okay. So I write them just a purchase and sale agreement. There is a seller financing addendum behind it that states the terms of what I'm willing to pay them. And if they say yes, then I'm in business. If they okay. say no, I just go to the next person. Right. If they have the property free and clear, then they carry back a note in first position. If they have debt on the property, my lien goes into second. Yeah. And then when I sell, the lien that I have with my borrower goes into third. So that's a double wrap. But if I take it subject to, then I'm actually not doing a wrap on that transaction because I'm taking the ownership and then I just sell it on a wrap. So if I'm buying it subject to, I'm just selling it on a wrap, which my lien is in second position, which I still have the underlying debt that's in first. But if the property's free and clear, then the seller takes it in first and then my loan to my buyer is in second. I think a lot. It's, I think it, it takes a long time for people to kind of get their head around that alone. But so, you know, everything that we do is honest and ethical, and there's nothing fishy. There's nothing funny. All of our buyers and sellers, they know exactly. We tell them everything is very, very transparent. So you are still just so I'm crystal clear on this. You're if the if the property has a mortgage, you're you're taking over that mortgage. You're buying yes. the house subject to the existing mortgage. Yes. Existing mortgage is staying in place. Yep. You're making the payments. Yep. And is the deed transferred to you now at this point? Yes. I take the deed. Okay. You take the deed. I take the deed. Now, when you turn around and advertise it for, I, I advertise for an owner-occupant, mm-hmm. how are you advertising it then? Are you advertising it with owner financing Yep. or lease option? Does House for sale, owner financing. Okay. And then when they agree to my terms, I transfer the deed to them. I carry back a note and deed of trust, which collateralizes the house to my paper documents, my paper, set it up with my servicing company. I give my servicing company all the information of the first mortgage, all of my information. So when the borrower pays the servicing company, the servicing company will then pay the underlying lien and then they pay me the difference of my net cash flow. So if you're taking it subject to, that lender's already escrowing for taxes and insurance. But I'm still making my borrower pay for it because it has to be in the payment somewhere. So somewhere in the transactions, you know, it has to be collected. So we require all of our borrowers to escrow their payments. So we don't let people make an annual payment on their taxes. Like they are required to make an escrow payment every single month. But that kind of, those kind of details, you just let the servicing company worry about and figure Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once we get to the very, very end of the deal and we're closing, like we have a house closing today, yesterday 
you know, my partner and I spent a few hours with the title agent there making sure all the, the HUD was correct because they had some expenses that weren't proper. So we go through, we make sure all the, you know, all the numbers make sense. We're happy with what our net number is. The borrower has their number that they have to get their cashier's check to come to closing. And we're pushing off all those expenses off on the borrower. So they're paying. Um, we don't require them to buy a title policy because when the, if there's a first lien on the house or we buy a cash, there's already a title policy on the property. But they do have to come to the table with their first year insurance premium, three months of taxes, three months of insurance. They pay the loan origination fee, which is my loan originator that processes the borrowers through Dodd-Frank. Same, under, same process that they would do if they went to a bank to get qualified. But they have to sign like 36 pages of documents that walks them through everything, all the details of the loan. And then once the deal is closed, we contact our servicing company. We send all the information to them, the HUD, the note, the deed of trust. They set up the payment coupon booklet to the borrower. They send out the welcome letters to let them know like, hey, you mail your payment to us. This is what the amount's going to be. They have the escrows set up and they handle all communication with the borrower from there. Right. So talk a little about, you mentioned Dodd-Frank. You're complying with Dodd-Frank. You're not trying to get around it. You know, nope. Which you hear yeah. so many people talk about and it frustrates me to no end. You say, yeah, right, look, we're going to comply with it. <laughs> we're going yeah. to do what they say to do. Well, that's not rocket science. And so now you work with, explain how that works. You have a is it a loan officer? Is it the escrow company that does it? It's, it's the loan originator, what I just explained to you. Mm-hmm. We call them in our market an RMLO, which stands for a Residential Mortgage Loan Originator. Okay. And what this professional is, is they have a specific license registered with the state that they are going to qualify and underwrite seller-financed transactions. Mm-hmm. So it's a separate license than a mortgage broker license. So they're... say they just want to make sure that we qualify them we want to they want to make sure that we are not predatory lenders and that we just are just throwing people into mortgages it's called the ability to repay so we follow an fha standard of underwriting so they pull their credit they pull all their assets you know they do the 1003 credit app they have to provide their bank statements their tax returns, their employment verification. If they are in a rental property, they have to, you know, from their landlord or whatever the case may be, they have to provide that information as well. So they're underwriting them just like any person that would go into a bank and get underwritten. Okay. But the one thing that we're, oh, I'm, I'm not saying we're overlooking, the one thing that we are helping them out with is if they have beat up credit, but they can provide all this information for us, the ability to repay the loan. Us as a seller financer, we are a small lender. So we are making the the decisions whether or not we're going to actually, you know, sell the property and carry back a note. Like the one that we're selling today, the husband has like a 720 credit score. So we were ecstatic because we know down the road, he's going to be able to refi at some point. I mean, we don't mind carrying the paper for, you know, 15, 20 years. But if they refi, then look, you know, we get cashed out. We get to take those funds and go buy another house. Okay, okay. So that's what, 
a lot of people really don't understand that. And you can go to um, consumerfinance.gov okay. and you can read about all this stuff. So that's what my professional has explained to me. He puts on seminars all over the country because there's so much questions about Dodd-Frank and people just don't understand what it is and they fear it. It's just like anything in life. If you don't understand something, you fear it, you say no. Even attorneys, because they're, you know, people will hire attorneys to go read the language and if, and, if, and if the attorneys don't understand creative financing or just real estate themselves, then they'll just come back to their client and say, yeah, I don't think you should do this because they're not going to tell their client, look, I don't know about this, therefore... Mm-hmm. You know, an attorney is never going to say to somebody, I don't know. But if they have that question in their mind, they're just going to tell their client no. Right. Well, they, they fear the unknown. Exactly. And um, so there's nothing much that you can do. The, um, and Dodd-Frank isn't something to be afraid of. It's not. It's really not. Um, it's not. It's, but, it's, it's just the qualification process. Just qualify your borrowers. Just make sure they can pay. You know, if somebody has a $1,500 a month income and their, and their payment's 800 you probably don't want to sell it to them. If they make five to 10000 a month and their payment's 800 bucks, and they can prove that they've made, you know, 5000 for the last five years, I'm not worried about them defaulting. And plus, if they put a substantial down payment down, you know, that's called skin in the game, right? Yeah. You don't want to finance people with nothing down. That doesn't make sense. Then you're putting yourself at risk. Right. So how do you, you know... Somebody in Missouri or Iowa or California, how do these other people in other country, states, countries, other <laughs> states, um, how, are, how are they finding their loan originators? Or do you have access to loan originators that can do these deals all over the country? Well, my loan originator is licensed in 39 states. So anybody that comes on board with me or is part of our program or I know personally will get referred to our loan originator. Now, um, he is not, a re- he's not, I think, I'm not going to list the states, but in a state that he's not in, I had this conversation, I had a two-hour conversation with him two days ago. He said, Ian, if you can bring me business in a state that I'm not licensed in, I'll pay the fees, I'll study for the test, I'll take the test and get licensed there. So, huh. um, the way that you find these professionals is, one, you go to all the real estate investment clubs, mm-hmm. you ask those folks who are doing subject to and wrap mortgages. Mm-hmm. You find them that way. And you also get the referral of the title company because, as you know, a lot of title companies won't close these creative transactions just because they don't understand the process of these transactions. Just like anything, if they don't know, they just say no. So that's how you find the folks in your backyard, in your market. You do it through the real estate investment clubs, find out who's doing subject tos and wrap mortgages, Get the referral for a loan originator from them, and then also get the referral for a title company that will close those transactions. Um, and you can also do it through Google and stuff like that. Google your state, um, loan originator, seller financing. There will be professionals in every market, especially if it's a major metropolitan, um, that you can find. And, and, and they don't have to basically live in your city. Like we do all of our documents digital, so... You know, my licensed loan originator can originate documents all the way up into Montana, North Dakota, because he's licensed there. Yeah, yeah. Now, can your title company do deals all over the country too? No, not necessarily. Um, they are kind of state specific, kind of like attorneys. Their license are state specific. So, um, but there are national title companies 
that have branches all across the country. So if you have a relationship with like here, we have one called Trinity Title um, and, and all the other states that they are affiliated in, then you, most likely we would be able to get, you know, a title agent, you know, in another state to do that creative transaction for you. Yeah. Um, I think that's a big hurdle for people in the beginning. You know, it took me a while to find the, uh, the investor-friendly title companies, but, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a thing of the past for us now, so. You just got to be persistent with it. And I think if you can show them that you have a licensed mortgage originator. Yeah. Who is doing the, the pre-qualifications for you. That's going to ease a lot of their concerns and fears. And, and a lot of times it's, um, it's just your relationships. And I totally agree. You got to network with the local real estate clubs, find out who else is using them. Mm-hmm. And just start asking around, and, and you got to keep in mind you're going to get a lot of no's sometimes, but that's okay. You got to be persistent with it, and you'll find them. Some states it may be an attorney that they need. Um, some yeah. other states it's got to be yeah, like New York. I know they use closing attorneys. You just have to, you know, you have to diligently ask and find out. You know, like if I would have given up the first time, you know, that I failed or had a seller say no or my marketing didn't work or or whatever the case may be, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here, but. I had this feeling inside of me that I didn't care what it was going to take because we all have to live somewhere and either I'm making a payment to a bank or someone's going to make a payment to me regardless. I just knew that I had to figure out how to get in front of that. And I'll, I'll tell you something that a client of mine told me years ago, and he was an investment banker, and he was, uh, I was cutting his hair, and he looked at me and said, Ian, you will never become wealthy with your two hands. You have to get in the path of money and leverage other people's time and money. He goes, if you can't do that, you'll never become wealthy. That's and that good. just it just stuck with me for, for a very, very long time. Hashtag tweetable. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I like to see that trend. You will never become wealthy. And <laughs> see what the <laughs> all the fuss of that, you know, starts kicking up. All right. So um a few more things I want to ask you about. Sure. Um what are you finding the best ways to market for buyers for these properties are? You know, I always say that I can pull buyers out of any market because we do pre-printed signs, and I'll actually show you one. Yeah. Um, I've tested this, and whenever we switch to this sign, the phone lines blew up. Wow. That's it? (laughs) House for sale, owner financing with the phone number. Pretty simple, right? Yeah. So when you go drop these out in any market... Your phones light up. And what I do with those is, once again, that, that is a, a call forwarding line. So that's just a local number. So I don't have an 800 number. A lot of people yeah. are hesitant about dialing an 800 number. So they see, you know, um, you know, they see the area code, and it's a very easy number to remember. So if someone's driving by, you know, I try to keep the numbers simple, like, you know, 443-4466. That's really easy to remember. So I take that's a call forwarding line. I shoot that into a um, a call capture software that's designed for brokers. It's called 877-INFO-LINE. And I can set up mailboxes for each one of those numbers. So if I'm marketing in Oklahoma, I'll have a local Oklahoma number, and I have it tagged to a certain – to a mailbox. So what we do with that is we send them through the 877. I actually come on the horn. Thanks for calling. Um, we have properties for sale right now with owner financing, and it's doing one of two things. One, I'm capturing their phone number. Uh-huh. It's somebody that called my marketing. I want to capture their number. Number two is I'm directing them to my sales team from there. If you would like to know what properties we have for sale, please press one now. 
So they hit number one, and then that line, then I have it set up to forward to my sales team. And it goes to their office. If there's no one there to take the call, it forwards out to another live person. So, so that's how we're funneling our buyers. So whenever we get a property, regardless of where it is, we literally pinwheel the sign. So I'll put one in the front yard at the end of the streets. And I try to put about 25 signs, signs out in about a quarter mile radius from that house. Now you put those signs out on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. So when the sun comes up Saturday morning, my sign is right there at the major intersections and the highways. And that's when people go look for houses. Yep. You know, folks that aren't familiar with the area that aren't represented by an agent for sure, um, they'll be driving around. And then also people that live in that neighborhood, they will get those numbers and call because they want their friends and family to know like, oh my gosh, there's a house here for sale with owner financing. We need to call this. We need to find out about it. So that's a little marketing funnel that we do. Um, And then we also post ads online, Craigslist. Um, We we don't get a lot of hits off Craigslist, but the signs perform the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we'll also flyer the neighborhood. neighborhood. So if we get a property under contract for sale, then we'll basically print um, the address, house for sale, owner financing showing this weekend. And then we'll put that phone number on there. We'll put my sales team's phone number on there. And then we'll blanket the neighborhood with flyers. And that's pretty inexpensive to do as well. Now, are you not? Are you trying to? Are you pre-screening them out through your voicemail that says something like, you know, um, you know, you need to have at least ten thousand dollars to put down on the house? No, my sales team does. Um, I keep it really simple because I'm just trying to get their phone number. I'm just looking for motivated people that want to buy the house, to buy a house with owner financing. And like I said, when they when they call that line, it's very, very simple. Thank you for calling. We have properties for sale with owner financing. If you'd like to know what properties we have now, press one. And then it shoots them to my sales team. Now my sales team goes through and pre-screens them, starts getting more information from them. How much can you put down? We have you know, the three things. Um, when are you looking to move? Mm-hmm. How much can you afford to put down? And how much can you afford per month? So if we know somebody's looking very, very quickly and we have something available, then we know that that might be a hot lead. So, you know, they can either make an appointment with them or drive them to an open house where we make all the buyers go at one time, which makes the down payment amount go up. Because we basically tell everybody, like, look, the house is available. Whoever has the largest down payment will get the house. Mm-hmm. And then once, they, once we find a buyer that wants the house and that will agree to our terms, we put them under contract. And then we send them over to our loan originator to start the pre-qualification process. And then they do that whole process. Owner occupants, the property code says that we have to give them seven days. So from the day they sign the disclosures, not the contract, we typically have them sign the the disclosures the same day they sign the contract just because we're looking to close them fast. So from the day they sign the disclosures... We give them a seven-day window, and that's what Dodd-Frank tells us. And in that seven days, our loan originator is doing the underwriting, gathering all the documentation that they need to close. They send that packet to us. They give us a profile, the credit score, you know, everything, that their debt to income. And then my partner and I, we look at it. We make a decision. Okay, this borrower looks good. They don't have, you know, all these funky charge-offs on their credit. Um, and then we close them. Yeah, good, good. Now, the, this team that you have that takes all these calls from buyers, I'm, I, I, I would suspect you're getting tons of calls. From yes. Buyers, probably more from buyers than you are from sellers. Yes. So how do, who's the team that manages all those calls? Well, it's actually a broker. 
Okay. I mean, I, just, they, I, I recommend to people also <laughs> yeah. use realtors for that stuff. But go ahead. Yeah, you know, and I do that too because, you know, a broker, their license is in the deal. My real estate agent, her license is in the deal. My title attorney, his license is in the deal. My loan originator, his license is in the deal. My company, our tax ID is in the deal. So we use all promulgated contracts from the state of Texas. I don't use anything funky. Um, you know, we, we use everything. Like I said, we are completely transparent through these transactions. And then I negotiate with my broker to pay them a 2% fee to sell the houses. And then they pre-screen all the leads. You know, I have their phone number because they called my marketing and I shoot it over to them because another strategy that we'll do is I'll go into that 877 info line and I'll pull all the people that called my marketing in the last three months. I drop that down into an Excel file. Then I go to another service called callfire.com. I'll upload that spreadsheet to the call fire. I set up a test text message, which says house for sale, move in ready, owner financing. And I leave my sales team's phone number there because I've already got their number. And then I will blast out my buyer's list. And we typically get about a 30% response on that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah. It's really important to have a buyer's list for sure. Um, and I love that you're using a realtor to do this for you. And they're getting paid well for it. Yeah, they are. I mean, you're not taking those calls yourself. No, on Saturdays and Sundays, I'm laying in my pool. I'm going out, hanging out with my dogs and my wife, and we're barbecuing and doing all those things. And then I just negotiate terms on my iPhone. Nice. But you know, when we first started trying to scale the business, you know, my partner and I were putting all the signs out, placing all the ads, you know, showing up, taking all the phone calls, handwriting all the contracts. Like, so we had to pay our dues. And then once we got to the point where we started doing volume, I just handed over to my sales team, which is my real estate agent and her broker. Nice. Okay. Well, a couple more questions that we done here. I sure. appreciate the time, Ian. Yeah, no problem. Um, talk about some of your exit strategies. Some of these deals you keep for yourself. Some of them you sell to... Um, other investors, right? You, yeah, absolutely. You're creating new notes and you're sometimes keeping them because the cash flow is so good, but sometimes you're also selling them when you want um, some cash. Can absolutely. You explain, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So once you create that note and deed of trust, I always tell people this, everything is contingent on how you set up the first transaction. So our exit strategy off the back of these deals are contingent on how we set up the first transaction. So Example one, um, if I borrow private capital, I'm going to borrow it cash, buy the house, sell it on a note. Now, for if I have to pay that investor off because I have a 12-month term on that cash, I can take my note and I can sell it on the secondary market at a discount, monetize my equity, cash out my investor. So that's exit strategy number one. If I get a seller to carry back the note on like a 20-year AM, I don't need to cash the note out. I, that's a keeper. Okay. Now, if I have a $20,000 spread in it and I have long-term financing on the front end, I can sell a partial of that note. That's how I can monetize some of my equity, the back-end profits, and keep a slice of the cash flow. Okay. So that's another exit strategy. Or I can put the property up for sale. I can get a cash offer. I've had that happen. You know, if I have an eight, ten thousand dollars spread on a deal and someone's offering me all cash, I can take that. Okay. You know, if the property's clean and I market it, you know, I don't need a lot of repairs, I can market it at full price. You know, a conventional buyer or an FHA buyer can come in and cash me out. 
So those are three different exit strategies. So it just kind of depends on what your needs are and how you structure the first part of the deal. If you can lock up long-term financing on the front end, then you can absorb all that cash and interest over time on the back end. If you have short, short-term financing or you know, your short-term capital on the front, then I know that I'm going to have to cash the deal out at some point on the back. Okay. And then what's your, most, what's your favorite strategy? I mean, what do you prefer to do? Um, my favorite strategy is long-term. So, for example, I have a lender that will loan me 20-year cash at 7.5%. So I don't need to cash the deal out. So that's my favorite one because that's the long-term cash flow. So if I'm borrowing, let's say, $40,000 at 7% for 20 years, I'm going to turn around and sell that property for $55,000 at 10% for 30 years. That's my ultimate scenario. That's my favorite. So I can either borrow bank money at 20 years. I can get the sellers to carry it back at 20 years. I can take it subject to, which already has a 30-year note on it. So it, that, those are my favorite. Long-term capital on the front gives me long-term capital on the back. If I have short-term capital on the front end, then I know that I need to monetize that on the back end, cash out the deal. Good. So every deal is a little different. I hope that makes sense to people. I know we're kind of getting advanced and technical in this, but that's been really good. You also talk about on your webinar, Ian, uh, you have investors – um, that will sometimes buy these notes from your students. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. How yeah, so the folks that come on board with us, you know, I'm going to train them, give them the support they need to go out there and put these deals together. Um, so it's like if they can bring me a, a house that has a buyer ready to go and we have a nice spread on it, I can fund that deal, pay that you know partner handsomely, and then I can take back the, the note. Like I'm in the business of uh, creating notes, not – buying houses. So you can't just send me a lead that I buy that has a house sitting there with nobody in it because, you know, I don't want to buy the the insurance policy. I don't want to fire up the utilities. I don't want to put the marketing dollars out. I don't want to go through all that. So I can train you how to go build your own buyer's list, bring those folks in. And, you know, if I can get them to get 20-year capital or a seller carry back, I would rather see that person absorb that big down payment and the cash flow over time and then if they have a note that they created or they came across, they can send it to us and we can you know, give them a bid and buy the note as well. Nice. So there's several different strategies students can do if they invest in your system that you, you, um, you're providing a service not really anybody else is offering right now. Yeah. So you know, we're providing them the training and the support to first do it themselves. So they can get their head around the whole process from beginning to end. I can come in and help them, support them. Uh-huh to help them iron out all the little things that it took me years to figure out. I can give them the support to do that. What I can't do is I can't motivate you to go do it. Yeah. So, but if, if you're motivated and you can get out there and you want to put these deals together, I can put you in the right directions and, and, and basically hold your hand from beginning to end. And then if it's, a, if it's a deal that's too big for you or whatever the case may be, or if there's a big spread that I know that we can both make some cash on, then you can bring it to me. I can fund it. We can... Uh, Nice. you know, monetize some of those profits that way. Good, good, good. Um, I can't think of any other questions, Ian, but let me ask you just one more thing. Um, sure. If you were to have to do it all over again and you were dropped into a city that you'd never been to before and you had hardly any cash and you needed to start making money, what are some of the things you would do to start making money in, in that city? All right, so 
If I had no money and somebody dropped me off in a hotel room and they gave me, if they paid for my hotel room, yep. okay. if, I had, if I had a place to sleep, mm-hmm. take a shower and eat, and I had a laptop and a cell phone and no money to put down on real estate, the first thing that I would do is I'd start putting ghost ads on Craigslist. Okay. Your city, house for sale, owner financing, your phone number. And I would open up as many different Craigslist accounts or actually as many different email accounts as I could. You can go to Gmail and set up six different Gmail accounts. Then you can go set those up on Craigslist. Then every two hours, you can use a different email account to post that ad. So all day long, all I would do is post ads for looking for motivated buyers. Okay. I'd start taking those calls. I'd start building a small list of people that are looking for houses for sale with owner financing. And I would ask them, you know, where do they want to live? How many bedrooms and bathrooms? How much, what's the most they can afford to put down? And how much can they pay a month? Okay. That would be the first thing that I do. The second thing that I do is I would call every single for rent ad, for sale by owner ad on the internet every single day. And I would, and I would go through all the different sites that have those properties and I would call them up and I would just, sit there and talk to them. Tell me about your property. Just build a little bit of rapport of them before you try to lead them into what you're trying to ask them. You know, because people that have a property for sale or a house for rent, they're going to love to talk about it because you're a potential tenant. Yeah. So the, the, I'd get to the end of the conversation. I'd be like, hey, you know what? That sounds great. I just got a couple more questions. Would you be interested in selling your property with a down payment and the balance in monthly payments? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know their situation. If they say yes... I would say, great. How much can you accept for your property? What's the least you could accept for a down payment? And what's the least you could accept for a monthly payment? Okay. They say, yes, I got a motivated seller. I already have some buyers. I would make them a offer and it could just be in an email, a white sheet of paper. I would structure it in those three ways that we talked about from the beginning, you know, close to their asking price, down payment. A little bit further away from their down, their asking price with a little bit larger down payment, and then a cash offer, and I would send it over to them. And if they said yes, I knew that I was on a timeline to get paid, because I had always, I already had a buyer's list that I was already starting to build. Yep. So I would fill out the agreements, give myself a 45-day time period to close. Hopefully, I can lock it up on that first weekend. I'd bring all my buyers in. I would continually post on every single site that can post free ads. And I would just get people that have cash. Now, if I build a big buyer's list fast and I don't have a property, then the next thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the investors that are offering properties for sale with owner financing. And in a major metropolitan area, there's going to be a lot of investors that have properties with owner financing ready to go. I'd call those guys, say, would you be interested in splitting the down payment if I could bring you a buyer that closes? Mm -hmm. It's a yes or a no. If it's a yes, now I have inventory and I have a buyer's list that it didn't cost me a dime to get. I do a one-page agreement. Mr. Seller, investor, will pay Ian 50% of the net proceeds at closing as a fee for bringing the buyer. Very simple language. I'd have him sign it. I hook him up with the buyer that I got. The buyer closes and at closing, he's got to pay me that, the funds yep. that we agreed to. So I've never given that much detail on something like this, but for you, I think this is a great call. So that is literally how you can do this with no money. I like to say this too. It comes down to the skill of how how to put the deals together, and it's not the house or the price range. 
It just comes down to the skill, the vocabulary to speak to somebody, give them the confidence that you're going to do what you can say you do, perform on that, line the buyers up. It's a lot easier to, to get buyers than it is to get houses right now. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's true almost in any market, it seems like. Sometimes. Yeah. But um, So did that, give, did that really give you a, a good indication of how you could do this with no money? Yeah, you, gave, you went into more detail than I was expecting. Cool. I appreciate that. Ian. Yeah, you got it. Uh, so, guys, this week uh, Ian is doing a huge launch, and um, he's got some amazing bonuses available if you're interested in his system. And I want to give you a link here to go check it out. JoeLikesHiddenCashFlow.com. How would you like that? That's awesome. Joe Likes. I could have gotten Joe Loves. But I'll do, <laughs> I'll do Joe Likes Hidden Cashflow. Dot com. If you go there, you're going to get a link to a little webinar that you're doing. You're doing a bunch of those this week, Ian. And um, just get some more information. I think you're going to be really impressed. Ian's the real deal. Um, he's not some kind of professionally trained speaker. You can tell just by looking at his office. He's out there actually doing deals, <laughs> which, I, which I love. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so good. Thank you very much, Ian. Again, guys, go to JoeLikesHiddenCashflow.com. Get some more information. Watch a webinar that Ian's going to host. And uh, I think you're going to be blown away. I mean, this is a no-brainer. This is really something that I'm excited about and uh, I'm going to start implementing. And I'm in several different markets right now, and this is something that we could really start uh, uh, implementing with the leads that we already have. Absolutely. It's it's a no-brainer. So cool. Hey, thank you again, Ian. I sure appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. Anytime. All right. See you, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care.